0: Yes that's my cue to uh <coughs> to come up good morning. Good, morning. good morning It is uh wonderful to uh to be here with you uh, I have uh been to grace on uh, several other occasions under uh, some different uh, circumstances to speak to a men's group and uh, participate in uh, ordination council of uh uh, Steve Wilson, who was one of my former students, and it's great to be back again. I know Pastor Joel quite well, and I just want to tell you how impressed I am of you as a church, uh, sending him to the Super Bowl this weekend. <laughs> what, a, what a thoughtful group you are. He told me he was going to something that had to do with athletics, and I just naturally assumed it was the Super Bowl, but... Uh, uh, it really is uh, a thrill to be to be here with you today. And what a, a joy it's been for me um, now in my 22nd year uh, to be at, uh, at Lancaster Bible College investing uh, my life in uh, the lives of some others. And as I look around the, the congregation this morning, I see, um, I see some smiling faces of some students that I have and some that I've had some who wish they never had me, and um, some who are sticking their tongues out probably right about now too. But uh, what a tremendous joy. You know, the payoff for me is, uh, if I may use Steve as an illustration, it's the opportunity to invest in a student's life and to, to watch them grow and develop and mature and use their gifts. And um, the, the amazing thing about Steve is that I was uh, a Brittany's, Campus Dad, because I was her pastor, I was the pastor of her home church in New Jersey, and I know her mom and dad quite well, spoke uh, when they were on the mission field in Venezuela, and so all of the girls uh, grew up with, uh, with my sons and so it, it is just so exciting when I see God at work in, in those ways, and I watch uh, I watch young men and women grow and mature in their faith and become Uh, Who God wants them to be, and it's such an incredible thrill uh, just to get out of the way and let God do what only he can in working from the inside out to change their lives. Uh, Scott very graciously said a few uh, things uh, by way of introduction, and I'm sure that uh, when those of you who know me uh, heard that I was going to be speaking this morning, I suspect that immediately there was something about the name Jim Ayers or Doc as many of the students know me that came to mind because there's a reputation that each of us have for good or for bad. Whenever someone hears your name, there's immediately a thought or memory an impression that comes to mind. The same is true of Bible characters. If we're a student of the Word of God, when we often hear the name of a particular character in the pages of Scripture, there's something about the story or something about our knowledge of that individual that comes to To mind. And so this morning, if I throw out the name Zacchaeus, what immediately first comes to your mind? Short man. man. Come on, let's sing it together. Zacchaeus was a what? Wee little man. Wee little man. man. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about Zac. I didn't know him personally. But the Bible tells us a lot about him. I'm going to invite you to make your way to Luke chapter 19. He is one of the characters that I studied recently as I've been trying to develop a a series of messages uh, called Close Encounters with Christ on his way to the cross. And Zacchaeus happens to be one of those guys. And in any passage of scripture as we teach it or preach it, it's always important that we understand it in the context in which it's written. And so as you're finding your way to, Zac, to, yeah, to Zacchaeus and to Luke chapter 19, I want to just set the stage for you and tell you a little bit about where Zach lived. He lived in the town of Jericho. Now, it's been my privilege uh, over the years of ministry at LBC uh, to go to Israel uh, 12 times. Uh, Lord willing, this summer will be my 13th visit to Israel. Um. I've done about, about eight student tours where uh, dozens of students from the college have traveled with me to Israel, and it's one of the things that I love to do and one of the places on earth that I, I love to be in the land of Israel. So I, I, I know this land, this city of Jericho as it exists today, but we need to make sure that we understand what it was like in the context of Luke chapter 19 when Zacchaeus lived there. It's a city we know from our study of the scriptures that Jesus passed through many times in his journeys from Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. Now to make that journey is just shy of about a 100 miles And if you follow the the Rift Valley, the Jordan River Valley, you're going to go about 80 miles straight south from the Sea of Galilee, following along the the banks of the Jordan River. And you're going to come very close to the town of Jericho. It's going to take you about three or four days to travel that far on foot, that 80-mile journey. Until you arrive in what was known as the City of Palms. It was called that because it was a beautiful oasis. It still is today. People from the north, when they traveled to Jerusalem three times a year because of the festivals that they were required to attend, they would stop at Jerusalem because it was a, a place of refreshment before they started the last journey, which was approximately 16 to 17 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. That was uphill. That was a rugged trip on a rough Roman road. It was treacherous. It was dangerous. But the town of Jericho in the day of Jesus was beautiful as it is today. They had abundant water. They had rich harvests fields of of palm trees and produce because the soil, the volcanic soil, was very rich that had washed down from the mountains into this valley. Many people don't realize that Jericho was also a Levitical city. It was a city where the priests and the Levites lived because of its close proximity to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, when priests and Levites were on duty, they worked full-time for about a week. And they had about three weeks off. So they would travel back then to their home in Jericho. And as a Levitical city, what archaeology has taught us is that it was a city that was what we would describe as upper-middle class. We know that from the kinds of homes that were built there. There were expensive villas. There was a first century synagogue there. There were ritual baths. There was actually a hippodrome that was built and found in the city of Jericho. There was a theater there. It wasn't an IMAX, but it was a theater. Large. No wonder King Herod, the great chose to build a winter palace in the the city of Jericho. It was a beautiful place. Even today, you can travel out into the deserted area and see the remains of Jericho's winter home of Herod the Great. The remains of his palace. Well, on this occasion, when Jesus was making this trip from Capernaum to Jericho, what was unusual about it was that it was his last trip This was the last time that Jesus would pass through this town because he was on his way to Jerusalem for the very last time And do we know why It was there that he was going to be arrested face several trials and inevitably his crucifixion his death and then the resurrection And we know from the context that a crowd had already formed because they had heard that this man Jesus, whose reputation now, after about three years, two and a half to three years of public ministry, had preceded him, there was already a crowd gathering as Jesus was entering the town of Jericho. In fact, if we were to back up for a moment... And look at the preceding chapter. Jesus did not even get into Jericho before someone called out his name. A young man by the name of Bartimaeus. You may remember him. He was blind. And he called on Jesus to have mercy on him and to heal him. Which Jesus did. And he's just barely into the town of Jericho When he encounters someone whose very name, by way of his reputation, irritated everyone. How would you love to be known as the most hated person in town? That at the very mention of your name, people would be disgusted. To know that you were unwanted and what people would prefer that you didn't live in their community. But interestingly, do you know what the name Zacchaeus means? Righteous. And I'm going to try to prove to you this morning from the biblical text that Zacchaeus was not a wee little man. He was a big man because he was a righteous man. Now by now I'm sure that you're in Luke chapter 19, so let's just read. I'm reading this morning from the ESV version of the scriptures. and this is what the Word of God says. He entered Jericho and was passing through and there was a man named Zacchaeus and he was a chief tax collector and was rich and he was seeking to see who Jesus was but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way when Jesus came to the place he looked up and he said to him Zacchaeus hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Verse 6. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of all my goods... I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Father God, we want to learn more about this man whose name suggested righteousness. And Father, use it as a backdrop to perhaps, as we paint his portrait, to look into the mirror of the Word of God as James speaks of and to see how we might be defined and described by other people And evaluate our own reputation of those who know us, and even the impressions that we give to those who don't. And so we ask, Father, that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see the truth of your word, and by the power of your spirit, that you would give us the ability to respond appropriately as we assess our own lives today. Try to determine, are we the kind of righteous man that Zacchaeus indeed was? And Father, if we are believers who are here together today, then may we celebrate that the lost has been found Father, if we are not in a relationship with Jesus, may we be reminded that this was the very reason why Jesus became man, to seek and to save those who were far from God. So regardless of our state and our relationship with you today, we pray that we would walk away from here changed from the inside out. We ask this not for our own good or our own glory, but, but really, Father, that ultimately you would be glorified in all that we do. And we pray this in the bold name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So let's take a few minutes and uh, try to paint a portrait of Zacchaeus and see if uh, it matches some of what... We think we know about him. And uh, there are some notes that are in your bulletin if you prefer to use them. I've tried to give you a a quick overview of some of the things that we'll take a look at. But we're going to move pretty quickly through most of them. But uh, first, and most prominent, we know that he was a chief tax collector. Verse 2 tells us that. Now, already, we have to kind of put a nickel in the meter and pause here for a moment because... I doubt if everyone truly understands what it meant to be the chief tax collector of a region. So let's just make sure that we're all on the same page. We have to understand that the the land of Israel was actually laid off in grids. And those grids were determined by the Roman road system. There were roads that ran north and south. There were roads that ran east and west. And at the strategic points in this transportation system, there were tax offices that were located. Now in those days, goods traveled by caravan to and from the coast. And so the caravans would carry commodities either going to the coast to be shipped elsewhere around the world, or things that had been imported into the country, and then there were import taxes that Romans would collect. Jericho happened to be located in one of those strategic intersections of the highways. And so, the chief tax collector was responsible in conjunction with the Roman government for the collecting of those taxes. Now, if you've ever had the opportunity to visit Israel, and I know a couple of you have, because I can spot one or two of you who've been there with me. But you know that the land of Israel was very rich in things such as olives, and so olive oil was a major export. Salted fish from the town of Magdala. Mary Magdalene came from that town. Salted fish was the, the prom that was the prominent place where the fish was processed and brought and sold and bought to be exported. Fruit, fresh fruits, pottery, salt, wine, balsam. There were all kinds of palms that were, were planted there. And so it was a place of rich produce. And these were the kinds of things that were exported. But these tolls and these taxes had to be paid at these collection points, such as Jericho. Now what the Romans did was in these different sectors of the land, they would auction off the right to someone to be the chief tax collector. And it truly was an auction. In Lancaster County, we're all familiar with what auctions are like. The highest bidder would win the opportunity to work for the Romans To collect the taxes in that particular region. And for Zacchaeus, he was the chief tax collector in what we call Judea. He would have hired under him other tax collectors who worked in some of the other smaller towns and villages. And so, in essence, Zacchaeus himself, at the top of that food chain, was more like a tax commissioner. Sometimes in some of the literature and particularly that, that dealt with the cut customs and culture of the land, they referred to this as tax farming. And it was a lucrative exercise because these individuals who collected the taxes sometimes had the reputation of putting a lot of pressure on those who they took the taxes from. Sometimes they used strong-arm tactics, sometimes threats, sometimes they intimidated, sometimes they were unscrupulous. They were abusive, they were fraudulent. In fact, there were even signs, we know this historically, there were even signs in the temple area that said that tax collectors were not welcome. But these tax collectors were for the most part, Jews who were hired by the Romans. So to say that he was a person of low status would be an understatement. No one in Jericho liked Zacchaeus except Jesus. And so we find Zacchaeus is identified for us in verse 2 as a chief tax collector. Now secondly, we know that he was rich. We're not quite sure how he got rich, but he had to have a lot of money to be able to buy that right to become the chief tax collector in Judea. So we don't know if he worked for it or if he inherited it, but we do know that he was wealthy. He was rich. Thirdly, It says that he was a man of small stature, or the NIV says, actually, that he was short. Now again, I want to put another nickel in the meter and talk to you for a moment about what this word actually meant. See, when we talk about stature, most often what comes to mind is the height of an individual. Consequently, the translators of the NIV said that he was a short little guy. A wee little man is what our Sunday school song says. And so our historical orientation to understanding who Zacchaeus was was that we stereotype him as being a short guy. However, that's not necessarily what the word meant. The word that is translated to describe Someone, it could mean that he was short, but there are two other meanings to that same word. It also could relate to the maturity of an individual, whether it be maturity in years or maturity in terms of spiritual maturity. In fact, it's even used in that reference, in that. Vain in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, it speaks of spiritual immaturity and maturity, and it uses this same word. But the third meaning of the word is especially interesting. Because the third meaning of the word is not a person's height, not a person's maturity, but it spoke of social status. In other words, Was this person well respected in the community? Was this individual someone who was despised or looked down upon because of their reputation? I'm going to suggest to you that based on the circumstantial evidence that I find in this text, I believe The text is better understood that Zacchaeus was a man of low stature. He was disrespected, and it had nothing to do with his age, or his size, or his height. Remember his context. He was living in a community which was filled with priests and Levites who were involved in what we would call full-time Christian ministry in the temple. They did the work of God. He did the work of pagan Gentiles. And so perhaps we need to reconsider what it means for someone to be small Of stature. Or short. Or as it says in the ESV. It says that he was. Small of stature. Translated differently. In a variety of translations. The fourth thing we do know about him though. Is that he was resourceful. He ran ahead. It tells us. Ran ahead of the crowd. And it says that he climbed up in a sycamore tree. Now, you may or may not know what a sycamore tree is like. It's a rather short tree, and it's kind of low to the ground, but it has these large branches that spread out very widely. And it's very possible to climb a sycamore tree very easily, and then to go out on one of the branches and actually be hanging in the tree as people are walking underneath it. Now I'd like to think as I understand this text that Zacchaeus truly understood which way the parade was going. He knew which way Jesus would be traveling on his way to Jerusalem. He knew the town's path ...toward Jerusalem. So he runs in front of a crowd... ...because no one is going to allow this despised man... ...regardless of who you conclude that he was short... ...or if you believe that he was pushed to the back of the crowd... ...because no one respected him enough to get a front row seat to see Jesus. Regardless, he is resourceful enough to run around the crowd do an end run, get up in a tree waiting for Jesus to arrive to where he is hanging onto a limb. Resourceful. It speaks of his perseverance and also raises some questions about his willingness to even potentially humiliate himself because men of this day wore tunics. And you know, you want to be real careful climbing a tree in a tunic. next thing that we learned about him was that he was hospitable because we find there's a conversation between he and Jesus. Jesus says to him, come down immediately. I'm going to stay at your house today. And it says that once he came down and he welcomed him gladly. Now, I don't want to read between the lines. And I always say I do not want to commit the sin of eisegesis, but there's an argument from silence here. No one else invited Jesus to dinner. You would think that with a town full of religious leaders, that they would love to have the opportunity to sit down and speak with this rabbi who has been teaching all across the country. I would love the opportunity to have someone like that in my home, to be able to dialogue with them, but no priest, no Levite invited Jesus to dinner. In fact... No one even had a conversation with Jesus that is recorded in the word of God. And in fact, the only individual that Jesus spoke to in the town of Jericho, according to this passage, now that he was actually in town, outside of town, he spoke to Bartimaeus, but in town, the only person he even speaks to is Zacchaeus. And so... Even though many priests lived in the town, Jesus felt a need, felt a necessity to accomplish the will of God to spend time having a meal with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was hospitable and invited him immediately into his home. We know from verse 7 that he was disrespected. Everyone identified Zacchaeus as a sinner. Again, speaks to the fact that he was a man of low status in the community. Number eight, we see that he's very generous. He said, Lord, without any hesitation, he said, Lord, right here, right now, I'm willing to give half of my possessions to the poor. Now, let's not read into it. That may not have been sacrificial giving. For Zacchaeus. He could have been that wealthy. I mean, if Bill Gates was here today and he said, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor, you know, that's really not going to crimp his style. <laughs> so we don't know how wealthy Zacchaeus was. We just know that he was a very generous man. He was not compelled. He was not even asked to do this. But he offered. But I want to suggest to you also from verse 9 that he was an honest man. And look carefully at the text because it says, Zacchaeus says, if I have cheated or defrauded anyone out of anything, I will pay back, I will restore four times the amount. Now, just for your information, the law of Moses did speak to this issue. Leviticus chapter 6 talks about it. Leviticus 6 says that if anyone sins and deceives his brother, he has to make restitution. They have to pay back what was lost. And then you have to add 20%. Zacchaeus says, if I have done anything to defraud you, anyone, I will pay them back four times what I defrauded them of. I, I, I can only speak for myself. But I'm not going to make a promise like that if I know that I have defrauded a lot of people. Because paying back four times what may be considerable sum could bankrupt someone very, very quickly. I think it speaks to the honesty of Zacchaeus. And the qualifier there was, he said, if, and I'm prone to believe and interpret that as he felt confident in saying that because he was an honest man knowing that he had not defrauded. Well, the last thing that we know about this portrait of Zacchaeus was that he was Jewish. Clearly, Jesus said he, too, is the son of Abraham from verse 9. Now, quickly, I want us to, now that we know a little bit more about Zacchaeus and the town of Jericho, what does this mean to us? So what? Well, let's take a look at a few principles that might be valuable to us this morning in our own personal lives. The first one is this. You see, the ministry model of Jesus was always what we call missional. Let me make sure I define that because some may, may define it differently than I do. In other words, ministry flowed out of the life of Jesus as he was going. It was in the normal course of events. Through the normal course of a day's activities, he would minister to people. In the previous chapter, a great illustration of that was, he came upon Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus had a physical need. Jesus healed him right then, right there. Now, there's a challenge for us to rethink something about ministry here, because so much of ministry as we think about it today in the Christian community is built around programs. In other words, we schedule times and we schedule places where we're going to go and do ministry instead of just allowing ministry to occur in the normal course of our life with the people who we meet and greet and the people who are a part of our lives Sometimes it doesn't just flow out of our lives. We have to program it into our lives. That was not the case for Jesus. You remember when he told the story about uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, which, by the way, happened on this same road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was as the Samaritan was going on the path that he happened upon. Someone who needed his help. A man who had been beaten and robbed. You remember the passage. We don't have to turn to it. Now the priest and the Levite both had the opportunity to do missional ministry, but they didn't. They just walked by. Why? Again, I want to be careful, but could it be because they felt, well, I just got done serving in the temple for a week. You know, I'm really tired. I've really missed my family. I'm eager to get home. I don't know. All we know is that they walked by, but not Sam. Sam the Samaritan stopped. Bandaged the guy's wounds. Put him on his donkey. Took him to the closest inn. Paid the bill. That's missional ministry. A second principle. The ministry model of Jesus was indiscriminate. Simply... What I mean by that is we we have a tendency to minister to people who are most like us. That really was not the case with Jesus. Jesus healed a beggar before he comes into town. When he comes into town, he heals one of the most wealthy men who lived in the town. People who were on polar opposite ends of the spectrum of society's wealth the only common denominator was that high society the high society of the priests and the Levites who lived in the town they despised both the beggar and the tax collector they would have put both of them in the category of untouchables no time we don't care But Jesus was indiscriminate, social stature, social status was never an obstacle for Jesus. He loved to minister to those who were marginalized, who were the invisible outcasts, who were different. To those who were rejected, unwanted, however you want to describe it. Related to that is the third principle that Jesus was always full of surprises. And I love that about him. I love that Jesus was not predictable. You see, before anyone speaks to Jesus in Jericho, he calls Zach out by name who's straddled on a branch in a tree. Now, who could have expected this? It was unthinkable that of all the people that Jesus would speak to, all the people that he would want to have a, a meal with, really? Zacchaeus? On the Roman payroll? A despised Jew? That's who you want to hang with? People of a high stature were upstaged by the guy of low stature. Because Jesus never played by other people's rules. One of the things which typified Jesus' life was that he was so countercultural. He did things so differently and never apologized for it. So we can only imagine the criticism that he received when he actually invites a guy by the name of Matthew, who was also a tax collector, to become one of his own disciples. Can you imagine the heat that Jesus took for that decision. No, Jesus was always full of surprises. Fourthly, it would remind us that we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. That principle comes right from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 3. That verse goes on and it says, rather think of ourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. You see... I believe that the the bulk of the people who were in the crowd in Jericho that day thought of themselves more highly than they ought. They were impressed by their own credentials, by their own position, by their own ministry. Sadly, those who often enjoy public prestige are impressed by their own works. But I'm drawn to what was written in verse 7 where it says, When all the people saw this, they began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, don't you find that unusual? You see, that infers that they weren't sinners, but Zach was. See, it's okay for you to hang with me because I don't have a problem with sin. But Zacchaeus, now there. You want a sinner? There you go. There you've got a good picture of one. I know that that's an overstatement, but you know what Scripture says. There's this one common denominator that all of us have who are here this day. So that every single one of us are sinners saved by grace. Every single one of us. Sin and come short of God's glory. You see, God doesn't grade sin on a curve as we often do. God is not impressed with our wallets, our IQ, our athletic ability, our musical ability, our careers, our fame, our education, our GPA, your resume. You know, I, I really believe that some people have the idea that God is going to be absolutely thrilled when they get to heaven so that God can get their autograph. I don't think there will be a press conference called for you when you get to heaven. You'll just be glad that you're there. Principle number five, you see, authentic righteousness is confirmed by character and actions. Let's not miss that in Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus wins by these standards. You contrast him to that rich young ruler, remember him? Who came and he asked the right questions. He had the right attitude. He made a lot of right decisions, but he made... One really bad one when he refused to give up his possessions and come and follow Jesus. You see, Zac generously helped the poor. And he said, I'll balance the books for anyone if I've cheated them. You see, my holy hunch was that if people really knew Zacchaeus, but the people who worked with Zacchaeus and the people who worked for Zacchaeus knew that by reputation he was a righteous man. Man That he was living up to his name. He was simply obeying the Roman law, but had not fallen into the same corruption that many of the other tax collectors had. And there's there's irony in this as well. Now the irony is this. Where did the income come from that paid the priests and the Levites? Well, the income came from the temple taxes that the Jewish people made and paid when they went to Jerusalem. Zacchaeus collects the Roman taxes and he makes his living On the collection of taxes as well, and Zacchaeus is despised, but the chief priests, priests, and Levites are revered. You see, I think Zac was just another Jewish man who was trying to live by kingdom values, and I think if we really look at the reputation that he had in his name. And by the way he lived, if we took an honest look at that, we'd have to draw a very different conclusion. Despised by some? Certainly. But you know what? I'll take being despised by people any day over being despised by God because God knows the truth. Now, there are a couple of admonitions I want to throw at you before I shut down this morning. You see, as we try to be righteous, as we work on our own reputation, here are a couple of things that I think you can do. You can take them or leave them. It's your choice. They're just ideas. First of all, put your reputation at risk to be a friend of sinner's. And you see, when you do that, you'll earn the right to be heard. Now, this is a very controversial area, and um, fortunately, because of the clock, I can just zoom right through this and then get out of town. (laughs) But you know what? There is so much discussion today about protecting our reputation, protecting our reputation, avoid any kind of appearance of inappropriate relationships, and all of those kinds of things. I I just want you to put that on pause for a second. And ask yourself this. If Jesus had that same concern, he would have had no ministry. Do you realize that most of the people that Jesus spent any time with were considered inappropriate relationships by the religious right of his day? Now, I'm not saying throw caution to the wind. I'm simply saying maybe we need to step back and say, yeah, we can do this carefully, cautiously, but it doesn't mean that we have to build barriers so that we're constantly offending people who are far from God. Stop stereotyping people. Because Jesus, what did he say? He came to seek and to save the lost. You know, it's I find that pretty Tough to do. If I have alienated myself from unbelievers all the time, by simply judging their behavior. Now, secondly, it's just a subtle reminder for us to deal with our own sin first and allow the Holy Spirit to do his job of convicting others of theirs. You see, if the chief priests and the Levites had spent as much time Evaluating their own sin as they did evaluating Zach's sin then this scene in Jericho probably would have been very different The thirdly and finally i going to get real practical here's a challenge for you something that I've tried to do in my life and my ministry and I have just seen it become an eye opener this may seem foreign to some of you and that's okay because I I live on the fringe. (laughs) But could I challenge you maybe this week to choose to be intentional about having a meal with someone who is very unlike you so that you can learn something about them? You see, I have this philosophy that I can learn something about and from people who are very different than I am. And so I intentionally work at trying to build bridges with people who are very different from myself. Does that make sense to you? I learn about them. And most of the time, they learn a little bit of something about me and what makes me, me. And so over the years, people who have taught me lessons and that I've gleaned so much information from are people like felons and prisoners and abusers and those who've been abused, rape victims, widows, widowers, orphans, motorcycle gang members, drug users and addicts, alcoholics, prostitutes, the homeless, poor, self-mutilators, transsexuals, immigrants, those with HIV and AIDS, homosexuals, I think I said that twice, I must, uh, must have spent more time with them than I thought I did. Uh, tattoo artists, soldiers, runaways, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Catholics, priests and nuns, rabbis, imams, even an ayatollah on one occasion. I had the opportunity to converse with. And every one of those times presented an incredible opportunity to learn something that I did not know. And to see them as a person, in most cases, as an individual who Christ came to seek and to save because they were lost. Maybe sometimes we've just drawn the boundaries a bit too tight. I'm not suggesting, please don't take this out of context, I'm not suggesting a reckless lifestyle with no accountability. No parameters. I'm not suggesting that at all. Don't be foolish. My goodness, I'm absolutely convinced that the gospel travels best over bridges of relationships. And if I don't take the time to get to know a person, why would they even care about my reputation? Why would they even care who I am or what I think or, even more importantly, what I believe? about the most valuable relationship in my life, the one with the Son of God. So a few admonitions for you to think about as you're developing your reputation this week. Oh, and by the way, if you don't know what your reputation is, find a couple of people who you really trust and say, describe me in three words. Guaranteed, it'll be an interesting conversation. (laughs) Pray with me, please. Father God, how grateful we are for your word. Father, help us to see ourselves, as James wrote about individuals who looked into the mirror of your truth. And they saw something there that caused them to look deep within their lives and to walk away realizing there was something that needed to be cleaned up and changed in their lives. Lord, that's me. I think that's a lot of us. So help us because regardless of if we like it or not, we all have a reputation. And so let us develop a reputation that is going to bring attention to you instead of turning people off about us or about you. So we ask for your help in this and we ask that we would be cautious, but that we would be known as men and women who are... Righteous, Wow. I'd love that to be the first word that comes to the minds of someone when they hear my name mentioned. Because I know, Father, that there is uh, much work to be done in that area in my life. And again, I suspect that a lot of us could e- echo that. So teach us by your word and by your spirit, give us the strength to become the men and women conformed to the image of your Son, who ultimately you desire us to be. And we will give you that thanks. And together with one voice and heart, we affirm these things as we pray together in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.